Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with George Lovatis. He's the portfolio manager of Upslope Capital, a concentrated long-short equity fund focused on U.S. mid-caps and other global developed markets. He also has prior experience at BMO, Citi, and SCB Global. He obtained his MBA at the University of Chicago and did undergraduate work at Georgetown. Welcome to the podcast, George. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. So how did you first get the bug? How did you first get interested in investing? So I was a bit of a late bloomer. I always joked that I was not somebody reading Buffett letters when I was 10 years old. Had sort of a general interest in Wall Street, I'd say starting in college, but was definitely not a, a stock picker by any means. When I think back to really trying to pinpoint like a specific time where I, it sort of hit me over the head that this is what I wanted to do for my career, I actually think it was back in business school. So I went to timed uh, going to business school nicely in the fall of 2008. A ton of time while I was there, probably too much time, just kind of holed up in my apartment trying to invest my own account and figure out how to sort of solve the puzzle of what was going on. And I was hooked on, just hooked on the screens, like seeing what was going on in real time. And just like I said, sort of the puzzle of like trying to protect capital and then eventually make money in some form. For me, it clicked right away that it was I was not the type that was going to be satisfied with just kind of long only or bust. It was, mm -hmm. I was interested in other, other tools available, short selling, inverse ETFs, all that stuff it was just kind of experimenting. And I just, I loved the time there and had no idea what I was actually doing, but it became very obvious then and there that, that this is what I wanted to do for a career. So investing through 2008, I mean, what did you really learn from that? What did you really take away from experiencing that? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I developed an appreciation for how fast things can change and can move, you know, I think in, in both directions. It's tough to say if I had any any big kind of overarching investing themes that or learnings, I'd say, that I came away with. I think some of the ideas John Hempton has written about averaging down on leveraged companies. So banks, you know, when a bank or, or a company that's extremely leveraged kind of goes into a spiral, mm -hmm. forcing discipline on yourself to not average down. You know, I think that was probably a big learning. And just, again, I think it sort of hammered home how far things can go if you you have to sort of be creative in, in understanding how far things can go. Do you think that there's a difference between people who actually experienced it versus those who just kind of think of it theoretically, like having the visceral experience of actually living through it? Probably. Yeah, I, I would think so. I can't say that I think someone like me, and I was just a business school student at the time, so I think of myself as sort of half living through it. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't like, you know, wasn't employed at a hedge fund or anything at the time, which I think would be a whole other level. But I think probably for anyone who lived through it, it's possibly created some maybe bad habits or bad tendencies, even a counterintuitive way. You know, I think I've, I've always had to kind of fight my own perma bearish tendencies. Me too. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that was, that took me some time to kind of get through it, but I think it, it made me very aware of those tendencies. And I think, I think just, just being aware of it is, is most of the battle. And, you know, I, I have, it sort of helped me establish, you know, 
years later, I'm coming up with the strategy that I manage today, establish some guardrails to sort of protect myself against those bad tendencies. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So how would you describe your overall investment philosophy? I mean, I think defensive is is kind of the first word that comes to mind, but you know, defensive, flexible, you know, my goal is to to deliver equity-like returns with uh, low correlation and and good downside protection versus traditional long-only indexes. I tend to gravitate towards, I'd say, defensive, predictable businesses. So kind of classic example is like the can companies that we'll talk about, I'm sure, you know, Ball or Crown, just very, very predictable cash flow generating, nothing too crazy with the stock-based comp and all sorts of adjustments and revenue multiples. That's that's not really my game. But, you know, I, I try to have some balance in the portfolio as well, you know, where it's not just defensive slow compounders, but, you know, also have some cyclical type exposure. And then on the short side, I'd say I'm, I'm pretty open-minded and diversified. So anything from, you know, cyclical type shorts to frauds and fads and, you know, everything in between. So with the shorts, you talked about frauds and fads. So like, do you think either of those situations tend to work out best or or like, do you have a certain kind of preference for what you're looking for in a short? Yeah. I think the recent SPAC boom and bust provided a lot of a lot of examples for sort of the ideal short on this front and I think you know to me it's it's a company that actually spans both fraud and fad yeah. so it's easy to talk about in hindsight you know not, not all of them work this way but you know one that I was short was this tattooed chef company and I, I think you know for folks that are on uh, finance Twitter they're they're probably pretty familiar with for those that aren't it was a, a trendy frozen foods company that kind of came out of the pandemic and went public via SPAC. You know, I think of that company as really spanning both the or quote unquote fraud and fad spectrum where was it a fraud? I I don't know, but there was certainly some some sketchy stuff that one could observe from the outside and was it a fad? I think that was reasonably obvious if you looked at the sort of products that they offered and the story and the the timing of, you know, coming out during the pandemic. So I think it it sort of checked all those boxes. And, and I think that's that's a lot of how I approach those type of shorts where I want to you know, have sort of a checklist and I want to check as many boxes as, as possible. And and the more that I can check, the better I feel about, you know, my staying power and sticking with it. So I guess it's fair to say that you don't short based on valuation alone, that you're looking for much, much more than that to the short thesis. Correct. It's tempting to short on valuation alone sometimes, but yeah, I think anyone who's who's shorted stocks for over the years, I think gets will inevitably get burned enough enough times on valuation shorts that they'll they'll uh, hopefully hold back. Were there any things that you shorted in the past that didn't work out, and what did you learn from those? I mean, the the most obvious one I, I have, like all short sellers, I have my uh, failed Tesla short identification card mm-hmm. handy. That was I can't remember how long ago it was, but it you know it was around the sort of peak frenzy. You know, when when Elon got in trouble with the SEC, you know, I had been short kind of before that and a little bit after that. I'd say I learned a lot of lessons from that experience, but biggest one is is this concept of focusing on the more sort of pitiful type businesses that people just don't care about that much. So, mm, yeah. today, you know, there's there's a long list of failed EV SPACs. Those would be much, you know, much better shorts than than Tesla, you know, who's, who's sort of the 500 pound gorilla. That was probably the biggest lesson. But I think, you know, the other thing is 
position sizing, you know, always sizing things smaller than you probably would like, I think is is a good way to approach things for a variety of reasons. And then the other thing is, I think having an appreciation for the, I don't know the right way to phrase it, but maybe the news flow distraction potential for any short. Tesla was unusual in that it was, the news flow was so fast and furious that even if you had a small short, so when I say a small short for me, that's typical fraud and fad short for me is like 70 basis points. And I think even if I had had a 70 basis point short in Tesla back then, the news flow was was so relentless that I think it still would have been a huge just mental distraction. And so have, having some appreciation for that as well, I think is important. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Yeah, it's interesting with Tesla. I feel like every time I listen to a short thesis, and this has been the case for like eight years now, it sounds like totally plausible to me that this thing is, is total junk and it's going to go out of business and uh, it always defies yep. my my expectations. And I imagine if you're actually short it, it just must drive, it must cause so much brain damage <laughs> trying yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. I think I, ideally you find something that, that people just, like I said, people just don't care as much about. And I think, you know, maybe someday that'll change with Tesla, but it, I, mean, I don't, I don't see it happening soon, but maybe someday it will. But I think right now it's pretty obvious even today, they have a huge I'd say investor fan base, not not just product fan base, but you know, on the investor front, huge number of people that care a lot about it. And I don't know what makes people not care anymore. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a wild situation. So thinking about shorts, how do you think about risk management with your shorts in terms of kind of preventing them when they go the wrong way from hurting the portfolio? Yeah, I think it starts with, you know, so I, I pay attention to to short interest and days to cover how susceptible a short is to a squeeze, but even you know there 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 have been plenty of times where I'm I'm still willing to take on a short that's pretty heavily shorted, and I think the step one for risk management is just position sizing. So I think for me that means some shorts are as small as 25 basis points. More often than not, I'd say you know again the the sort of spicier shorts that I have are tend to fall more in the 70 basis point range, and there's no it's not a a magic number, but in my head, at least, I guess I sort of settled on it because I think of it as, you know, at 70 basis points, if I wake up one morning and there's a completely ridiculous press release that causes the stock to squeeze 50% overnight, you know, it's now kind of a 1% position and I can I can survive that. I, I don't necessarily need to cover if that happens. I can kind of decide what to do. And it's, that's from, uh, Again, very wishy-washy numbers, but uh, just from experience, I, I think that scenario is entirely plausible. You know that you wake up and there's just some ridiculous press release that maybe is meaningless, but it still causes the stock to squeeze fifty percent or more. And I had been short back in the day. There, there's this company called Eros, which was the so-called Netflix of India. I remember waking up to at least once these sort of bogus press releases that they put out on partnerships with Amazon and and this and that. And if you actually read between the lines, you'd realize that it wasn't anything real, but it didn't matter. The stock was heavily shorted and retail investors loved it and they'd squeeze it up 50%. And then, you know, by the next day, the squeeze would be over and it'd be back to where it started. But you need to be able to survive those. Gotcha. Uh, Beyond just position sizing, I think just having some you know, real humility and not really caring about feeling stupid. I think just that mindset is extremely important. What I mean by that is if, you know, you might be short something and Tesla is the perfect example. 
you might have the perfect short thesis articulated and valuations ridiculous and it you know it checks every box possible but at a certain point you have to you know you have to cut your losses and you have to move on and you know you need to be realistic about surviving and you know protecting capital and you don't just fight something you don't you don't want to fight religious battles on the on the short front yeah that's that's good advice so let's shift gears talk about longs so what would you say is your main philosophy towards your long investments yeah so i i'd say i have sort of a checklist. I gravitate towards sectors that are relatively simple. You know, I, I need to, you know, feel like I really understand the business model. I want to see positive or at least neutral, I'd say long-term secular trends, obvious competitive advantages. I have pet peeve of mine. I feel like I, I often see people describe companies competitive advantages where they have to do backflips to actually come up with something. And you know, I, I want it to kind of hit me over the head that it, you know, there's an obvious advantage. I want to see actual free cash flow, not, you know, not heavily adjusted nonsense. And then just, you know, I'd say straightforward management and reasonable valuation. Instead, I think compared to a lot of folks, I'm probably less, less academic in terms of valuation. You know, I I do do DCFs, but not not always and you know, focus mostly on multiples and and just try to be really try to just be reasonable more than anything. I'm not averse to paying a higher multiple for for a good business, but again, it it all needs to be reasonable. What kind of multiples do you generally look for? Like do you have any hard rules about that? Not really. I think it depends on the business and the the sector. You know, I think I've owned deeper value stocks and and I've owned it's been a few years now, but I, I've owned uh, you know owned like a market access and you know held it through. It was tough, but I think held it through even when it was trading at kind of 35, 40 times EBITDA, which in hindsight was pretty ridiculous. And I, I think I kind of knew it at the time, but I'd say it's a different story once you're you're holding it versus actually buying it outright. Gotcha. And you talked about moats and competitive advantages. What are the kind of characteristics you like to look for in a moat that you can feel confident in? I mean, I don't target anything specifically. I've done a lot in, I mean, as a few examples, I've, uh, I didn't mention it before, but you know, my background, I've, when I was a banker, an investment banker, I covered brokers and exchanges. And so I've done in the investing world, I've done a lot in the exchange world. So I think network effects of an exchange, some of the regulatory modes that, that exchanges have, stuff like that is, I'd say, stuff that I look for and that resonates with me. And then within, uh, you know, I do a lot in packaging as well. I had covered them in a, a previous life in the sales side and doing research. And so I think there it's, they're more, I'd say more scale advantages and uh, you know so, some other sort of quirks of the business. So in the canned business, for example, you can't really ship them very far. So they have this sort of local aspect to it as well. Mm, gotcha. So how do you think about companies' balance sheets? So do you have a preference in terms of leverage? Like, do you prefer something to have no debt? Are you comfortable with levered up companies if they have a robust moat? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think I'm pretty open minded. I think you know, honestly, I've attempted to own a few overlevered stocks over the years, you know, kind of turnaround semi-distressed stories and I think I've I've concluded that I'm not very good at managing those and and identifying good, you know, good setups. But uh, that aside, you know, I'm I'm open in terms of balance sheet, so I think, you know, when I think of at the high end, you know, some of the packagers, you know, they could handle 3-4 times leverage 
And I'm, I'm comfortable with that because of the relatively stable nature of their businesses. You know, they're, they're effectively, you know, consumer staples. And then, you know, I think anything that's, you know, that's, you know, one times or less, I sort of view as, as a, you know, a notable positive when I'm kind of working through the investment thesis. Gotcha. I noticed that you divide up your longs into core longs and tactical longs. So what is the difference yep. between those two? Yeah. Over the years, I've kind of realized that my terminology was just, uh, I think, me trying to not use the the typical cliche phrases. So core longs to me are, are really, they're more kind of compounder types, very obviously high quality businesses. When you look at them, you know, decent balance sheet, good free cash flow, obvious moat, positive secular trends, all that stuff. And then, you know, for core longs, I'd say I I tend to be less valuation sensitive. So I'll, what I mean by that is that I mentioned holding market access at 35 times EBITDA or somewhere around there back in the day. For core longs, the idea is the timeframe on them is intended to be multi-year and I'm not going to sell just because valuation is stretched. I want an actual, you know, operational catalyst to actually exit the position. Tactical longs, on the other hand, are more traditional value investments. They, you know, they'll have some hair, they'll be, they'll be kind of, you know, pretty cyclical most of the time. And my time horizon on them is, is usually kind of six to 18 to 24 months. And for tactical longs, because they're lower quality and I'd say I'm more valuation sensitive, both, I guess, at the beginning, I want to pay an obviously cheaper multiple. And then as I'm holding it to, as it sort of approaches my price target or what I think is fair value, I'll start to exit, even if the business is still holding up pretty well. Gotcha. And how do you split up the portfolio between the core and the tactical positions? Is there like a set target or does it kind of depend on the market environment and what you're looking at? It depends on the market environment. You know, I think in the early years of the strategy, I, I leaned much more on core longs and uh, sort of shifted over time where it's, it's, I think I'd probably a little bit more towards tactical today, but it's, you know, it's about half and half roughly over time. I will say that core longs in general, one thing I didn't mention is they, they tend to be sized bigger. So up to typically kind of 10, 10% at cost is about where I feel comfortable. Whereas tactical longs, you know, it'll be more like six, seven, eight percent at cost. Gotcha. And I also saw you wrote that there's a, uh, you have a 10% max rule for sizing. So why is that the case? Where does that 10% come from? So it actually, it's just really personality, I think, you know, thinking through what, what I think is what I'm comfortable with and kind of knowing, you know, knowing what I can handle. And my, my rules are, are generally, you know, it's the sizing rules are at cost. So in theory, I could let something run, but I, I know that in practice, you know, I tend to not be all that comfortable holding positions that are you know much more than like 12% or so. Gotcha. And I also noticed that you have a preference for mid caps. Now, mid caps are a super interesting area. If you go back and back test it, mid caps are actually the top performing segment of the market. So, like they outperform small caps. So, why do you prefer uh, mid caps? Why do you think they're such an attractive area? So, I, I'd say a few things. So, one, it's it's just an area that I've always focused on. So, the you know, I mentioned exchanges and, and packagers, those are two sectors that I tend to always have some concentration in. And a lot of them, more so packagers than exchanges, but some of the exchanges at least used to be mid caps. You know, it's it's just an area that I know. And I, you know, a lot of the companies that I've followed over the years tend to be mid caps. 
But then I, you know, I also think of it as it's sort of in between small and large caps has some benefits. So I think by the time most companies make it to mid caps, I think, you know, you're, you're less likely to see maybe some of the shady stuff that you see out of smaller micro caps. So you're sort of fishing in a better pond to begin with. And then, uh, you know, in theory, at least, I think getting getting at companies while they're still mid caps, in theory, some of them at least might have a longer runway for growth than, you know, some of the larger mega caps. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I've always thought of it where, you know, when you're a large cap stock, generally, in most cases, you're eventually going to go into some you're going to go into a downturn at some point, usually, if you just think mm-hmm. about like the business life cycle. And then with mid caps, you're kind of capturing those former small caps that are on the upswing and they're they're on the road to become large caps. Yeah. I think some of those points probably work, also work on the short side too, you know, where you can have things dropping out or there are some opportunities, companies that maybe shouldn't be mid caps that have kind of snuck their way up there, you know, it might be good shorts. Gotcha. Yeah. And how do you think about selling? So do you sell on business weakness, valuation? How do you think about selling a position? Yeah. So I, I think I tend to focus more on, I'd say, operational momentum. So more business weakness than anything else, as you mentioned. But like I said before, I think it depends a little bit whether it, I'm looking at a core or a tactical long position. So a, a core long that's you know, fully valued and the fundamentals are starting to roll over, that's that's probably when, you know, I guess when I say that, I mean, you know, I maybe have some questions about their competitive advantage eroding or something of the sort. That's when I'll exit a core long. For tactical, it's, it's again, if valuation is becoming full, then I'll start to exit. And certainly if kind of fundamentals aren't doing well or rolling over, that's, that's when I'll head for the exits as well. Gotcha. And what do you think about the current situation for small and mid cap? So there's been this big performance golf between small, mid and, and large recently where large has been outperforming. Really mega caps is what's outperforming right now. So do you think it's a good historic opportunity for that segment of the market? My intuition is yes, but I, I also know, you know, I'm, I, I'd say I wouldn't describe myself as an expert on the nuances of index composition. And I know there's a lot there that not all the indexes are comparable to each other for a variety of reasons. And so I, you know, again, my, my intuition is that small and mid caps are are probably going to outperform going forward, but it's, it's tough to say. I think you could have said that at any point for the last five plus years and been completely wrong. That's true. I've been saying that for about five years. <laughs> so another thing I thought you thought you wrote that was pretty interesting, you wrote about Sosnoff's law, which is that returns vary inversely with the thickness of the research file. So what what does that what does that mean? You know, we should, we could probably update the name to Tegas's law at this point. <laughs> so I think <laughs> it's related. So I because I, I have sort of an emerging theory too that you know the the higher the more Tegas transcripts you have on a company, the the more likely it is to be a lousy long. <laughs> and so I think the theory is really that my theory at least is that if you have to do tons of work above and beyond to justify buying a long, it's probably not worth your time. It's probably not a long, you know, so I think intuitively, at least my, my philosophy is that, you know, longs should be fairly, fairly obvious, which means, you know, they're, you're not going to come across great longs all that often, but, but when you do, they should be pretty obvious. And so it's, it's as simple as that. Sure. 
That makes sense. And then for value traps. So, you know, how do you define a value trap and and how do you try to avoid them or, and, and do you, do you short them? Yeah. I, I don't know if I, I have a, a definition of it, but you know, I think in general, a value trap is just a stock that looks, looks cheap and it's, it's going to continue to look cheap and, and get cheaper over time. Ultimately, it's just a lousy business or a cyclical one that's rolling over. So yeah, I, I've, I'd say, I'm sure I've been long some value traps inadvertently, but you know, in general, that's has been sort of a uh, part of the sh- the short book as well. You know, I think the classic one. So I don't have a position today, but classic one that I had been short over the years was OI Glass Beer Bottle Company. I think is sort of a slowly shrinking business, and uh, you know, to me, that's sort of the prototypical value trap, at least historically. I don't know about today. Gotcha. All right. That's super interesting. So let's talk about some of your longs. So one that really jumps out to me as a really, it looks to me like an extremely high quality business is Ball Corp. So they do mostly packaging. What is the case for uh, the investment case for Ball Corp? Yeah. So Ball is, so they make, for those that aren't familiar, they primarily make beverage cans. So beer, energy drink, soda, all the just literally just the cans and they're the largest aluminum can producer in the in the in the world historically it's been a really strong steady business with great cash flow so it, you can think of it as sort of like a a you know a consumer staple business where they their top line sort of correlates with beverage volumes over time which isn't a particularly cyclical in market obviously on top of that cans have slowly taken share from other substrates. So it's not just that you have, that they track beverage volumes, but it's beverage volumes plus, you know, one, two, three percent, depending on the region, because they're slowly taking share, cans are slowly taking share from glass and plastic. There's each of the different substrate producers claim that they're the most environmentally friendly, but I, I think I probably buy it in the case of cans. So there, there's a little bit of a, an environmental angle. Because they can be recycled. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this sort of not very cyclical baseline growth that, again, has sort of a secular tailwind of taking share over time. They're the leader, and I think you know it's it's not that hard to to stand up a, a new can line, but I think it's awfully hard to compete at the price that Ball and and some of their competitors. You know, I I think it's it's pretty hard for new you know, new entrants to come into the industry. And the industry is very consolidated and and historically pretty rational. So with that in mind, I'd say, you know, I will acknowledge, I think during COVID, the industry got way ahead of itself, not unlike a lot of others, you know, capacity expanded too much. And I think the cherry on top was that Ball itself purchased the arena naming rights. So Ball is based here in Denver. Uh-oh, that's uh, always they, a bad sign. They purchased the arena naming rights of the, uh, you know, the the Avalanche and Nuggets stadium. Although it, it was pretty funny that, so the nickname of the stadium before this happened was the Can. Uh, <laughs> so it, it actually kind of made perfect sense in a way. And then of course, I also, I'm biased here, but after Ball bought the arena naming rights, the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup and the and the Nuggets won the championship as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they, they had, they've had a good two-year run, at least on that front, uh, despite the stock getting uh, hammered over that time period. So Ball, I'd say, you know, today it had historically been this very predictable, like I said, rational, good cash flowing business. It got completely out of control, you know, during COVID. Like I said, capacity expanded in the industry way too fast investors 
I can't remember what the peak multiple was on ball, but investors became enamored with the ESG angle and things just kind of went off the rails from there. Since then, ball has faced all sorts of challenges. So they had a decent sized Russian operation that they've had to divest. They have significant exposure to Budweiser and, and you know, have, have sort of lost share with Budweiser because of the recent controversies. You know, it's it's historically been a pretty levered business. I think, you know, it was reasonably levered back when rates were low, but it's it's tougher, tougher today, a tougher algo today with uh, where rates are. And then more recently, you have people worrying about uh, GLP-1 impact on soda and, and beer and and all that stuff. So they have all these these issues. I think, you know, my thesis is that most of them are so all of them are very well known at this point. I think a lot of them are temporary and, you know, likely to reverse at some point in the, you know, shorter medium term. So I think, you know, the Budweiser exposure is what it is and, you know, I, I don't think Budweiser is going to go away. I think it probably stabilizes at least from here. And then you know, in terms of soda, you know, exposure to Coke and Pepsi, and there have been some well-known issues in in that space because of inflation. Those producers have have pushed price extra hard, which has hurt volumes. You know, I think we're at the end of that period now, or we're approaching it, where you'll see them start to refocus on volumes, and that will help Ball. That's that's really kind of what drives profitability for Ball is is the volume of of cans that they're they're able to sell. So I think you have some of these aspect, these headwinds, you know, halting or turning around. And then to me, the most interesting thing is, so Ball historically had this very, I mean, I don't remember how long, I forget the exact uh, reason why it was a part of Ball, to be honest, but they had this aerospace unit completely unrelated to the can business. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I was like, that's weird. What is yeah, that? <laughs> so they, they produced, you know, com- like satellite components, basically. And it's, you know, it's been a part of ball for decades. And it was just, you know, it was nobody, I covered the company on the sell side and nobody really paid attention to it. I mean, everyone, the only attention people would pay to it is, you know, occasionally asking them if they would consider selling it because it had no, no logical fit, but it, you know, it was small enough that it wasn't a huge, you know, nobody really thought about it in terms of valuation or, you know, modeling the company. So they finally decided to sell it this year and, they're getting, you know, proceeds will significantly delever the balance sheet. They're getting a great multiple for it. And I think, you know, it should close hopefully in the first half of next year. And so to me, this is a, a pretty clean catalyst for shares to to sort of help get ball back on track. It it cleans up the balance sheet and it immediately, you know, they're immediately immediately going to have a significant amount of, amount of money to restart buybacks finally. And it occurs to me that this is all happening at the same time that you've got those temporary issues that I flagged that are seem to be troughing. And then on top of it, you've got a macro environment where, in theory, a, a really defensive company like this should be particularly attractive. So I, I sort of like all those issues coming to a head all at the same time. And, you know, shares are, they're not screaming cheap, but it's, you know, trades for about 15 times earnings. And you know, I think 15 times earnings on earnings that should improve from here as as volumes pick up again and margins revert a little bit. That seems awfully reasonable to me. Yeah, it does. And just looking at the trending and valuation, like it looks like it's at a reasonable valuation compared to where it normally trades. And it is also crazy how wild the valuation got in 2020. It looks like it got up to like a 60 PE. So that's pretty, yeah. 
pretty nuts. And in terms of the remote, like I, if you mentioned earlier that there's a geographic advantage on, you know, in terms of canning. So could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. So they, a lot of their plants are, you know, right next door to like a Coke bottling facility or a brewer, sometimes even like share a wall with them where the cans push through. Wow. That's a moat. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, in general, it's known that cans are not because there there's an expression that you don't ship air. So cans are not very good for, doesn't make economic sense to ship them long distances. So they, they do kind of need to have these plants right next to the bottlers and the brewers. And, you know, I think because of ball scale, they're, they're able to produce, you know, to, to buy the aluminum and, and produce at, at scale, you know, across their whole network and, and be there, you know, right next to all of the, the facilities that they need to be, you know, they can do this extremely efficiently and crown can do it too. crown. There is, is crown and Arda are their biggest competitors. They can do it too. But I think it's the industry is pretty consolidated and rational. And I guess my point is more that, you know, new entrants are pretty unlikely. Yeah. Oh, that's that's super interesting. I need to I need to do more work on that, but it sounds like exactly the kind of thing I'm looking for. Um, so another one I thought that was very interesting was Aptar Group. They make basically dispensing technologies and they specialize in like the pharmaceutical and the health industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about Aptar Group? Yeah. I, so Aptar is I've owned it basically since I started the strategy. It's another packager. It's covered by packaging analysts, even though it, I'll, I'll get into this, but even though it probably should not be. So historically, the common theme across their business is, as you said, dispensing technologies. So they're, they don't produce containers, they, you know, packaging containers, they produce like the sprayer or the actual dispensing device. So historically, what that meant was, you know, if you think of like a perfume sprayer, they're doing the spraying mechanism as opposed to the perfume bottle. Mm-hmm. And in my view, there's a little bit of extra technology there versus just a, you know, plain container. What's been interesting to me following Aptar over the years is I, I remember, you know, I think when I started covering it on the sell side, talking to other folks and people just didn't understand it. It always traded at a premium to the rest of the packaging industry. It also was one of the only packaging companies that had really consistent organic growth, you know, like mid to high single digit organic growth. Mm-hmm. Over time, what I discovered was, you know, I think, so Aptar's business was, it's split between kind of traditional, call it CPG type packaging, perfume sprayers, sunscreen sprayers, that kind of stuff, you know, some food and beverage stuff. And then this pharma business, and really it's the pharma business that I think is is a it's a real gem where they do inhalers and, and other injectable components and pretty, you know, almost I'd say medical device, you know, sort of light medical devices. And, you know, that business is very high, high margin, you know, 35% EBITDA margin. It grows at least high single digit organically over time, and it's not cyclical. And if you look at Aptar today, I, I don't remember the the specific split, but you know it's on the revenue line. It's I think about half pharma, half non pharma. But on the EBIT line, it's you know I think it's about seventy percent pharma and, and the rest non pharma. And so you have this interesting business where because so first of all, the pharma segment is much more attractive than the rest of it, and it contributes most of the profit. And second of all, it's growing faster than the rest of the business. So over time, pharma has has slowly overtaken the company where it's it's now pretty close to 
you know, not on the top line, but on profitability, it's it's increasingly looking like a pure play, almost like like I said, almost like a medical device business. So I I've found it interesting where the, you know you have this dynamic of the business is actually getting better over time, just as as time passes because it becomes more of a pure play pharma packager, and then like I said, I I think I, I just view it as a very high quality, very predictable non cyclical business. Yeah. And they, I also read that they make um, components that go into syringes. So they would yep. be- benefit from vaccines, right? Yep. Yeah. Vaccines and kind of feel silly mentioning it, but the, the GLP one stuff I think is, is will help them. It's not a huge part of their business, but I think it'll be definitely a, a tailwind for them. So is, is the GLP one stuff, is that a major kind of macro thesis that you have? Because uh, I, I think you mentioned that briefly with Ball, you were worried about Bud, and then you were talking about this one. Do you think that's a that's a major change that's happening? I think so, but I it's tough to know. I think it's definitely something to be aware of. And I think, you know, gun to my head, I think it probably is as big a deal as, as people think it will be. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about it. So I think, you know, with Ball, I, you know, I, I sort of alluded to it. You know, I think there are risks with GLP-1, but I, at the same time, I think it's unfair to assume that a company like Ball is is going to stand still and not react in some mm-hmm. form, you know, and that beverage companies aren't going to react. And I think those are poor assumptions that are, are kind of being made now. So, but that doesn't mean that they'll, you know, they'll escape unharmed in any way. But just that I, I don't think that it's going to, they're just going to sit there and take it if demand goes away. Yeah. And who knows? Like, uh, yeah, I, I think it's hard to tell like, exactly what's going to happen. I mean, at the end of the day, people are going to drink stuff, whether it's diet soda and seltzer water versus sugary Coca-Cola, like who knows? But yeah, yeah I, I think ball should be fine through that. Yeah. I know for me, when, I, when I'm when i trying to eat healthy and, and be healthier in general, I tend to consume more diet soda and more you know s- sparkling water in cans than, than less, but maybe that's just me. No, I'm, I'm with you. Same. <laughs> so another interesting, this one you'd find as a tactical long that I thought was interesting. I've, I've looked at it myself as Garmin. So, uh, you know, what do you think is the investment case for Garmin? Do you like the, is that a part of like a, a fitness thesis that people are going to get more interested in like fitness devices that Garmin sells? Yeah, I, I, I think so. So I think like Garmin's kind of a funny company because I, or in a lot of ways, but you know, I put it in the tactical bucket at least for now because I think it's it's pretty obviously a you know it's a discretion mostly discretionary business. Mm-hmm. But that being said, like I, I think it's a very high quality consumer discretionary business. So I think you know I sort of stumbled on Garmin as a customer myself. Was started using one a few years ago. Was very happy with it, and I think. What prompted, I mean, it was a few years into using it that I even thought about looking at the stock, but what actually got me really interested in it was I had two business school friends over at my house, you know, maybe a year, a year ago. And by pure coincidence, all three of us had the exact same garments. The, the instinct? (laughs) The uh, forerunner. Yeah. Uh, Okay. 900, I think maybe, maybe they're slightly different forerunners, but they're forerunners. You know, in addition to that, I I had started poking around the Garmin app, and there's a section that I think nobody actually uses, but I was kind of curious, you know, where it can kind of search your contacts to see who you know that has a Garmin, you know, that's that's on oh. the Garmin app. And there was there was a shocking number of people that I know, again, just from my 
my silly contact list on my phone who are on there. So anyways, that that's not a reason to, you know, to like the stock in any way or, or like the business, but it, it sort of caught my attention that there was something kind of interesting here. And so I started doing some work on it. And, you know, I found this, this interesting kind of niche little company who has navigated, you know, kind of fended off Apple over the years and, and other big tech assaults. And I think the fact that they've been able to defend themselves against Big tech to me says that there is is sort of a secret sauce somewhere in there. And I think to me, it's that they're really good at focusing on kind of product and, and niches. You know, they make a product for specific kind of hardcore customers that, that, you know, that will not leave them for an Apple. They have, you know, from what I can tell, a pretty maybe over the top, even engineering culture, which has good and bad, bad aspects to it, but kind of ties back to being really good at focused on product features and you know delivering what their customers really want even if sometimes i think it makes them maybe they're not as good on the marketing front as they could be but yeah i, I think it it's an interesting business i think long term i i think i assume that interest in fitness and outdoors will will only continue to grow yeah and then i mean with with the wearable segment they have some competition they've been able to fight it but they also have some other interesting businesses too like i thought that the uh, one of their modiest segments i think is the aviation segment like they're pretty much yep. the gold standard in aviation technology so exactly yeah i think a lot of frankly even even i i probably don't know as much about about the you know aviation and uh marine segments as, as i should but i think they're both uh they both seem like they've delivered pretty well over time. Yeah. I mean, whenever I went fishing, you know, the person always had a uh, Garmin fish finder on, on the deck. So yeah. yeah, And that's been going on, I think since the nineties. So it's, it seems like a pretty interesting business. I was nervous about the threat from Apple, but mm -hmm. and Google, but you're right that they've been able to really defend that in a pretty strong way. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you have a Garmin or Apple yourself? Uh, no, no. I got sick of it. Well, I did have a Garmin for a period of time. I got sick of it because oh, no. I didn't like having to charge it. So now I just wear a regular 80s digital watch. <laughs> yeah. When I was doing, when I was really into it, I was, I was wearing, I liked the Garmin yeah. the best out of all of them. Yeah. I mean, I think of it as a, a completely different device, you know, the Garmin watches versus the Apple watch. You know, to me, the admittedly, I've never owned an Apple watch, but you know, I have an iPhone and I, to me, the Apple Watch is effectively a miniature iPhone on your wrist. Yeah, um, and it's a kind of a crappy iPhone. <laughs> yeah, you know, it gives you, you know, it, it does heart rate and and you know it does have fitness features, but you know I think people buy them mostly because they you know they want the other stuff, you know the you know the phone connectivity and the text and the email and all that stuff. And I my Garmin doesn't do any of that stuff, and I'm thrilled that it doesn't because I don't want more of it. Yeah, I'm the same. And it, yeah, and it does the other stuff really well and. I still, I'm still blown away by the battery difference between the two that, you know, an Apple watch needs to be charged basically daily. Garmin is weekly, week or two weeks, depending on how you use it. So, yeah. Yeah. I did like that aspect of it. The other thing I just like about it is being able to see the time all the time where, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have to move your wrist to, to see the time. It's just there. I thought that was yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you about today. Yeah. Is there same any here. Is there anything you'd like to add for the audience? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. Really, really enjoyed the conversation, though. What are the best ways to learn about you and reach you? 
The easiest way is, is my website. It's just upslopecapital.com. I'm also on Twitter at, at upslopecapital. Pretty straightforward. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.